0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths, a very special uh, Supreme Myths, because today we're not really talking about law. Today we're going to talk about vaccines, we're going to talk about COVID, and we're going to talk about them with, I'm going to disclose this at the outset, one of my oldest friends we first met in 1974. Bill Hausdorff went to Carleton College undergraduate, got his PhD in biochemistry from Johns Hopkins. He did graduate postdoctoral work at Duke. He has worked for several big drug companies. He worked for USAID, CDC. He is currently working for a nonprofit. He is an expert on all things vaccines. He's, in fact, a vaccine developer and an epidemiologist and just the person we want to talk to us about COVID vaccines and all the related issues. Bill, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks very much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. right person at the right time, it sounds like.
0: You are the right person at the right time. So... I don't know anything about vaccines, epidemiology, biology, or anyology for that matter. Um, so we're going to start at the very beginning and and go through it from there. So first of all, I know you and you love vaccines. Why do you love vaccines?
1: Why do I love vaccines? Well, love is the right word. First of all, it's not your word; it's actually my word <laughs> because I do love them, and I love them because on a number of fronts. One is that they are about preventing disease. And I like prevention rather than treatment. I mean, treatment's good if you're sick, but it's nicer not to get sick. A second thing I like about them is how they work. And this is very different than almost all medicines that we deal with, because they work by stimulating your own immune system to do what it does and do it earlier and possibly better than what it normally does. So what do I mean by that? Your immune system, when it when you, when you encounter a bacteria or a virus, like a
0: Justice or, Thomas, for example. Sorry, had to throw that in. For
1: example, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a vaccine against that. But <laughs> when, you, when you encounter those, uh, your your immune system gets to work. They start to make antibodies. It starts to make T cells, B cells are going. Your innate immune system. Lots of things are happening. The problem is, is that that bacteria or virus or protozoan like malaria, they're starting to replicate. They're trying to, they're trying to copy themselves. They're invading tissue. So the same time your immune system is just getting going, they are getting going. So it's actually a race. And normally you win the race, your immune system, yours personally, Eric and everyone else's, normally you win the race because you recover, you get sick, but you recover, you clear the infection. But sometimes you don't. And what a vaccine does is basically get your immune system to do that, to get ready for the bacteria or the virus or bug before it sees it so that once it sees it, it says, I got you, I I know what you are, I recognize you, and I'm going to wipe you out. And that's how vaccines work. And to me, that's what you want is something that relies on your own immune
0: system. How do you make vaccines? I don't I mean, very generally, how do you make vaccines? Well, I mean, a vac- what, a, what is a vaccine? Maybe it helps yes. to start with that. A vaccine is
1: something that looks to your immune system like the virus or bacteria or protozoa. It has to look like it. And what does that mean to look like it? Well, it could be a little piece of it. It could be a tiny little piece of the bacteria or a tiny little piece of the virus. In fact, that's what a lot of the COVID vaccines are, a little piece of that, of that virus. It could be actually the whole beast The whole virus or bacteria but killed inactivated so it can't cause disease but it'll cause your immune system to react to it as if it did it could be something that that mimics it in other words it it is a substance it's not magic it's not you know some gas or fluid it's basically something that looks like that so to make that you have to make it in a factory i mean you it's like it's a drug in that sense. you have to you have to actually construct it and there's a number of different ways to do that, depending on what kind of vaccine it is. Does
0: that no, help at all? <laughs> I, it does. And I think this is a dumb question, but was the first vaccine polio? No, it's not a dumb question, but that isn't the answer. Okay. In fact, we'll ask the
1: audience now. Oh, <laughs> nobody's on the audience. The first vaccine was smallpox. Oh, right. And that was done by Edward Jenner back in the 1790s, although people were essentially immunizing against smallpox for centuries before that. It's very interesting. The Chinese were doing something very similar to what Jenner came up with many years later, decades, centuries later, called variolation, which was a, which is to give people something that would make them react when they saw the smallpox virus. They didn't know what the virus was, of course, but they knew smallpox. So this is something that is a concept that was around for a millennium. And what Jenner did was to actually make the first one uh, based on a similar virus called cowpox that milkmaids got and which gives you protection
0: against smallpox. I'd like to ask you more about milkmaids, but we'll move on. Um, I assume that smallpox vaccine was a world changing event?
1: Yeah, I mean, smallpox was uh, the real scourge of mankind yeah. in terms yeah. of the award winner. Number one on the top, hit a pit parade, top of the pops. Makes Ebola look like a child. Smallpox was responsible for hundreds of millions of deaths over the years. Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions of deaths. Wow. It, it really is a beast. It really over, over you know over many many years, and it wasn't and, but it also has the has the um, the glory of being the first human disease to have been completely wiped out eradicated from the face of the earth. And that was because smallpox vaccine that Edward Jenner developed starting in 1789 or something, which was obviously cleaned up and made better and was used all around the world. And it was in our lifetime that this thing happened. In fact, it was 19, I think, 77 that the last child with smallpox lived. He's he's still around. He, He survived. Ethiopian kid, I think. But that was it. So, you and I have smallpox scars on our shoulders, and people born maybe 10 years later, they no longer gave smallpox vaccine when it was clear the disease is gone. So, it's a pretty amazing story.
0: Oh, I guess I didn't realize that. So, people don't get smallpox vaccine anymore. No. Wow. No, because um, the disease was wiped out. Okay. No and the virus around. Another was probably a long line of ignorant questions. So, sometimes I've read and I've seen some concern that terrorists could somehow unleash smallpox again or something? Am I making I mean, what, what's that about? No, that's a that's a real
1: question, because we are no longer vaccinated against smallpox, much of the population doesn't have the immunity. You and I probably will survive because we've been we've been immunized. But Because we're older people, than dirt. We are. We, or maybe we are dirt. I don't know, but we <laughs> we, we do go back. Um, And so one of the questions that was a big, big question about 20 years ago was a big question was the U.S. and the USSR and now Russia have stores of smallpox virus in their freezers. They still have the wild virus. And the question was originally the plan was you get rid of it completely. Get rid of it completely because you don't want to have any chance of an escape of an accident or that somebody could make a a vaccine. I mean, a a terrorist weapon out of it. It would be pretty nasty. And there was a big political discussion. And frankly, the answer was, and now let's keep it around just in case we need it to make new vaccines. So it still exists. So in theory, yes, it's one of many possible bioterrorism agents that you have to worry about.
0: Okay, that's a little scary, but we shall move on. Um, How prepared and when I say we in this sentence, I mean, let's just say let's just talk about the West for now. How prepared was the West for COVID?
1: Well, it's a, it's a good question. What does prepared mean? If it prepared means, did we know a pandemic was coming? Yes, we knew that because they've been coming. Flu pandemics have been coming. You know about the famous 1919. Everybody knows the Spanish flu, which was the misnomer, of course, from 1919, which was devastating came right. after the First World War. But there have been other flu pandemics since then. They just haven't been as destructive including the one maybe 10 years ago. So whether there was a pandemic coming, scientists have been saying anybody who knows any history knows, yes, there will be more. What we didn't know, obviously, was that it was going to be specifically this virus or a coronavirus, which is a different virus. Doesn't really matter in that sense. We didn't know that. Were we prepared? Well, on one you can look at it one way, we made a vaccine we, meaning the world community, made a vaccine or many vaccines that are highly effective at preventing you from getting really sick or dying or going to the hospital. Very, very effective, over 90% in record time. So I think that's pretty good in terms of being prepared. We didn't have the vaccine because you couldn't. You don't. You have to. You have to know what you're making the vaccine right. against, and we didn't right. quite know it. But right. once we had it, it was within nine months. Boom, we got it. So that's very cool. What we weren't very well prepared for, and it does depend a bit on the countries, so we can talk about that in a second, because the US isn't, it turns out, the only country in the world who had this, is we weren't very prepared about testing. We weren't, I mean, that we screwed that up in a big way, especially in the US. Right. We weren't very prepared about messaging, about what you should do, about masks and when you use masks. I don't think the communication in general about how the thing was transmitted was very good in the beginning. You don't know much; you really don't know. But pretty soon we began to realize it's transmitted this way, but not that way, and that should have changed how we behave. that wasn't done very well.
0: So this isn't so a vaccine. Is... Que- this isn't a vaccine question, I don't think. But um, my wife and I, Lynn, were, were in New York just this weekend, and I was amazed at the vaccine testing. Uh, on the streets of New York, just on 45th Street and 52nd Street, there were these tents um, that that were labeled as COVID vaccine testing centers. And there were, I don't know, dozens, if not more of them. Um, could that have happened way sooner? Should that have happened way sooner? Yeah, okay. I think so. I
1: think you're right. I think this is the whole testing thing. And part of the reason that it didn't happen way sooner was that there you had to develop tests that were very specific and accurate. And there was a delay and kind of a, a mess up in the U S specifically with the CDC had a specific test that they thought should be used and the FDA held off letting anybody else's test come in and the CDC test turned out not to be very good. So there was a delay in a few months. You may remember, there also was very little provision, I think, to get the tests out there. Once they were there, there still isn't very good. You know, you see them you see it there, but yeah. a month ago, as you know, I think I was traveling, before Christmas, and we thought we might have COVID. And here I live in Washington D.C., the nation's capital, and we could not get a test.
0: There that, was no. That seems insane to me. Test. That seems insane.
1: And that's a year and a half later. This is not right. two months. You know, a month after the thing came out, and that's that's a failure. That's a the crash. other thing
0: I don't know, and maybe you don't either. Is, I mean, you walk the streets of Atlanta, you don't see testing. I mean, there there are places to get tested in Atlanta, but there aren't these booths like they have in New York. Now, are, are there like, portable testing centers in Oklahoma City, Topeka, you know, Bismarck? North, I just have no idea. Uh, I, I mean, these are cities much smaller on scale than New York City, but still hundreds of thousands, sometimes Minneapolis, probably is millions of people. Are there testing centers there like that? So I, I don't know around the U.S. So
1: it's a good question. I, I can tell you a bit around the world, though, yeah. that one. Of, that's one of the things that distinguishes some countries... in in Europe, for example, from other countries in Europe or from the US. I think Denmark was incredible about testing. A lot of the European countries were much better about testing early. In Asia, they were extremely rapidly testing. I mean, the Chinese, but Singapore and Taiwan. And that actually goes back to your question, were we prepared or were they prepared? Some of them in, uh, in, in the countries in South Asia were quite prepared for a pandemic And you know why? Because they had the original SARS, right? The Original SARS, which is an even nastier virus than this guy. I mean, killed higher what they call case fatality rate. The proportion of people who die was higher than this guy. This guy is actually fairly mild. It just infects everybody. That's the problem.
0: This was more contagious. Is that what you're saying?
1: This one is more, yeah, much more contagious. This is why it became a pandemic. That guy, the original SARS wasn't as, it wasn't as contagious at all. And so it ended up dying out. But those countries, the Taiwans and the and the Koreas and the China and Singapore, they had gone through that. They hit it. And so they were all set with their messaging and with their testing and their partly their quarantining, contact tracing. And so as a result, they had much, much, much less um both disease but certainly serious disease than we've had or that even Western Europe has had.
0: So so you mentioned Singapore, and that interests me because we have good friends who are living in Singapore, uh, have been, th- been there for several years, and they have, uh, they have children to my, my, my kids' ages. Um, and what I know about Singapore, I, I think what I know about Singapore is they clamped down immediately and, and really everything stopped and, and, and testing and quarantining and all that stuff. And it worked, I think, in, in, in Singapore, but in a way that I'm guessing would not have been acceptable in America. Yeah, that's another aspect. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right. And some, some of the country
1: Asian countries not only clamped down or they didn't, they had tracking in a way that was much more intrusive that right. I personally wouldn't have right. liked. But another country, which is not Asia, turns out, which did that more than anybody else, is Australia. Yeah. I mean, Melbourne, Australia really shut down for months and months and months. We have got very good friends there. And they were, you know, marveling at it. And you may recall, Australia had very, very few cases. The borders were closed. They're pretty good at closing their borders. Right. Now they've opened up. Now they're getting more cases, but it's just became unsustainable after nine months. And now, of course, there are vaccines and antivirals.
0: So what I want to, when you, when you talk about it that way, and, and we agree that Singapore and Australia did things that, you know, were really dramatic and worked, but um, there was a cost And and, and, and you know, You're coming at this as a scientist, not someone who does social policy. But when this whole thing began, I was surprised that from the very beginning, you were extremely sensitive to weighing the costs of the measures taken to stop the spread, the death, the fatalities, and the effect, just just to make it personal, for example, on my teenagers who had to spend a bunch of, you know, a year or more, whatever, in a room, effectively – without any friends, my we our plan was to give my youngest child, Kai, a, a cell phone when they were 13. That changed to 11 because of COVID. That's had terrible effects on, on, on us, believe me, on that. Um, but you were always sensitive to that kind of thing. Do you think countries like Australia and Singapore overreacted in, in, in that sense? I don't know. You'd have
1: to ask them what they, right. what they considered to be appropriate. I mean, different countries put up with different types of behavior you know we put up with for example lots of guns soap social policy sorry not vaccine a lot <laughs> of countries go i can't even imagine you doing that right we may look at the extent to which they're able to track each other and we go we can't imagine that right but it's it's i think it really depends on the country okay i i, I just i will say that to me the thing that was most that is most scary and this is a, a larger theme beyond COVID, is when decision making is based on just fear Right. Just fear and in the and fear and, and, and lack of knowledge of anything. And at the beginning of this this virus, the beginning of the pandemic, we knew almost nothing. We knew what the virus was. That was actually really quick. But we didn't know how it was spread. We didn't know how easily it was spread. We didn't know. We knew pretty early on that people that young adults were not getting very sick. It was more older. But we didn't even know if that was the big deal or if it's more people with. With, with immunocompromising conditions and risk factors. We didn't have that. We didn't know whether in schools it was being spread or, or not. Right. There were crazy stories at the beginning, Eric. There were crazy ones that I've looked back and written about a bit, about people saying, don't walk on the beach right. in San Diego. <laughs> you got to be crazy because, why? Well, because theoretically, the effluent from the San Diego sewers does go into the ocean at some point and it could have the virus in it. And then when the waves break, it could be in the <laughs> mist, and you know the mist blows on you, so don't walk on the beach. And I think that kind of thing, where it was a free-for-all with everybody and their mother and father and sister and brother weighing in with whatever, with everything, getting into the news, saying it could be this, it could be that, meant you had some very difficult policy making going on. And and having to winnow that down early I think was really important what really is as a way that it's transmitted what really works
0: what really doesn't so I can personally vouch that during the first few months of the pandemic when people like people were saying and not just commoners but experts were saying things like don't touch the shelves, and you might get it if you order food, you know, make sure that you have whatever that craziness was. You said from the very beginning, at first it was a thesis of yours, and then I think you ended up saying it's more stronger than that, that this thing called viral load, or how you get the disease, is really important to how sick you get. Leaving aside pre-existing conditions like obesity and diabetes, how you get it, the, the viral load, is really important. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So let me just clarify, because just for anybody on this and
1: who's listening to this, who knows a little bit of, of the viral world, yeah. viral load isn't the term I would use okay. because that's sort, of, that's sort of the load of virus in your body. How, how, how many do you make? So I would like to say, if you don't mind, infectious yeah. dose. In other okay. words, how much are you being exposed to, which is what you're, what you're talking about? Yeah. And so the question is, Does it matter how much you're exposed to? Because you can imagine different situations in the real world. You're outside, you're walking, a jogger comes by, they have COVID, they breathe. Oh, and maybe a virus comes here versus you're in the bar as usual, Eric, and you're sitting there, you're hunched over, you've had a couple of drinks and the music is loud and there's smoke in the air and you're leaning forward and you're laughing and telling jokes and you're very close and somebody coughs in your face, one of your friends. Imagine the difference between those. And right at the beginning of the epidemic, of the pandemic, the scariest stories for me were the stories of young physicians in China. Right, right. Who were getting sick and dying. And that you're going, oh, now this this is not something this is not standard influenza. If that's happening and what it seems to have been, because, you know, we all know now we knew actually pretty early that in general, young people were not you know, a particular risk for, for much. Yes, if you have certain core medical conditions, but most are not. So what was going on there? And I think it became very clear and there's some actually quite interesting studies involving golden Syrian hamsters, which I want to wait, tell you wait, about. wait, say
0: that again? Golden Syrian hamsters? Yeah, I'll tell you about them in a second. Now, hold on, but hold on, just want... real quick. I can't, now my wife can't watch this because if Lynn watches this, she will want a golden Syrian hamster. So now she can't yeah. watch
1: they're very sweet. Don't watch, Lynn, please. Golden <laughs> Syrian hamsters. But before I I want to give you the bottom line, then come back to yeah. them, because I think everybody will be amused and titillated by the golden Syrian hamster stories. <laughs> um, the, the bottom line is that it does turn out that how much you're exposed to the infectious dose in the case of this virus does seem to make a difference in how sick you get. Yes, how much you get infe- you get exposed to will will affect. Your likelihood of getting infected makes sense, but it also affects how sick you get. Maybe it seems intuitive. Maybe it's obvious, but that's not necessarily true for some other viruses. HIV, for example, it's not so true. And I'm not sure it's true for rabies, but it is true for this guy, it turns out. And how do we know that? Well, let's come to our hamsters, the golden Syrian (laughs) guys. It turns out when you have, you know, there's still animals being used in research. I
0: got to stop you there because... Two weeks ago, I had a guest on who would be very upset about this information, but go ahead.
1: Well, it doesn't matter. They, it doesn't, they can be upset, but in the real world, yes. this is what's happening is that when you have infectious diseases, people look for an animal that reacts like humans do to that particular virus or bacteria because they want to be able to do experiments quickly to right. see what works or why it is. It turns out that monkeys aren't actually quite as good, and I think they would be surprising, but it's also, you don't want to work with monkeys if you can help it. Turns out mice, which everybody who works at animals uses mice in the lab at some point, they're not as good. The golden Syrian hamsters react kind of like people. You can infect them with the virus. They get the same kinds of range of disease that people do, going from asymptomatic with no things to actually quite sick, bad pneumonias, and they can die. So you can do things with golden Syrian hamsters. And there's molecular reasons why we won't get into. Um, and you can turn out you can put masks on the golden Syrian hamsters. teeny masks, little, little masks. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the little masks on them. But you can put them on their cages, you can put a cage of golden Syrian hamsters next to another cage. And one of those cages, you could have them infected. They already infected you infected them on purpose. Oh, and you wait yeah. to see, will they infect the ones in the next cage over whom they can't touch? It turns out, yes, they will. So it goes through the air. You can prove it. You can put mask material around the cage. And what happens? What Eric, what happens? You predict. You're the scientist. They'll it's be less happen. contagious. It turns out there's less of the next cage that gets infected. And when they do, they're less sick.
0: Oh, that's so the key. The le- that gets those infected. who get infected are
1: less sick. Right. That's right. And so there really is evidence that masks not only prevent you from getting um, getting infected to some extent, obviously they're not great, we know that, but it depends the kind of mask, but they also will, if it, you get infected, you're less likely to get seriously sick. Right. That's something that people don't necessarily know about masks. It's not just about yes or no. It's about even yes, you don't get as sick.
0: Right. That makes total sense to me. Um, I have a political question for you and you might not be able to answer it. And just, if you don't, you don't. So, what grit – let me ask it this way. Has the Biden, I mean, of course, it's different time periods, different situations, but has the Biden administration done a better job than the Trump administration? If we had had the Biden administration from the beginning, would we have done a better job? Or, a Cl- or a Hillary Clinton administration? <laughs> These are a lot of variables here. Yes.
1: Um,
0: how about the Mario Rubio administration? <laughs> <No. laughs>
1: Well, it's a, it's it's complicated. There were things that Trump, with all his beauty, didn't do terribly. I mean, they did have a vaccine a right. crash vaccine program with right. some real people who were involved. Right. And there were vaccines developed. They weren't developed by the government. They were developed by companies. But the government clearly was pouring in money and helping. Right. And we had vaccines really quickly. So, um, you know, how much credit you give the government versus the companies. But still, there was a, an environment. Yeah. where I think was very damaging personally was there was all sorts of crazy mixed messaging. Like you can take bleach, you know, you can expose your insides to ultraviolet light. You can take these other med chloroquine. So you had this cacophony of crackpot, um, you know, maybe in the beginning there was some evidence or somebody somewhere, but pretty quickly it was clear these things are not working. They don't work. And if you take them, they can not only be dangerous, But you know they can. I mean, not only can they not prevent the disease, but they can actually hurt you. Right. And that kind of stuff meant uh, that was one aspect. And there was tremendous pressure on the CDC to say certain things, to say that the 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 epidemic was ending, to stop testing. Remember, Trump wanted to talk about we don't test, we don't have it. That wasn't good at all. I think the Biden administration is obviously better on these fronts, but they also have been struggling with clear communication, very clear messages. And I I should say just one one thing is that it is tough. I mean, you have to have sympathy. Think about this is a moving target. You don't know everything. You don't know how things work. You don't know what's going to happen. And you've got to make some choices, which are going to be imperfect based on imperfect knowledge. So I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the people at CDC and elsewhere. But at the same time, they are trained That's part of their training to be clear communicators, and I think it was very difficult under the first administration, but I don't think they've mastered it still on this.
0: Right, and and, and I want to say, and and this is me talking, not you, I want to be clear about this. My experience working for the Department of Justice on some very high-profile cases and uh, and other experiences I've had in the law involving national matters suggests to me that we have not had a, even the Obama, we have not had a presidential administration whose first thought wouldn't have been as much perception as reality. It's just how they think. I mean, I, I, I think it's how poli- – I mean, I, obviously, we have similar politics. We don't like Trump, anything about him. But I'm not sure any administration wouldn't have first gone to how do we manage this in a political way rather than what's the most effective way of stopping this right now. I'm mean, just talking about the U.S. now, but I, I think I'm probably on pretty firm ground when I when I say that. You want to react to that, or say no. I
1: think that I think that's I think that's true, but but at the same time, part of the public health world is knowing how to communicate responsibly, right? To avoid the kinds of panic
0: right. that
1: makes things happen terribly. Right? Right. I mean, that that's that's what exactly what I'm talking about, and that's what to me when panic drives decision making. And if we may just deviate for one moment into politics, to me when you have this just fear. You get terrible decisions. And I think you get that. You, you saw that years ago, frankly, with the Iraq war invasion. There was this fear. Right. When 9-11 happened, it was this visceral fear. But of course, you know, it is scary. It's horrible. Right. But you can't let that drive your decision making. And that was true with the beginnings of this. If COVID, if the virus is everywhere, if it's like a miasma, which you may recall or not, back in the 1800s when you were, we were both children, in the early 1800s, <laughs> That was the theory of disease, that it was this kind of vapor that malaria, 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 bad air, miasma came from the swamps. It was just this floating everywhere. Nothing you can do except get away from the swamps. Right. That idea was still in the early days of COVID that it was like everywhere. You can't protect yourself. Once it became clear that there are certain ways it's not transmitted. And you mentioned your, the doorknobs right. and wiping right. off every package. Obsessively, right. which we still do, we still people are scrubbing the metro in D.C. Don't worry, we're going to scrub it down. I mean, it's not going to do it. There is, there is a lot of evidence that no, that's not how it's transmitted. Right? Doesn't mean some things can't be. Of course, some things are, but that's not how this guy is
0: transmitted. So, so the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm confident about is that uh, I'm using this as a segue to something else. Is that Trump's calling this the Chinese flu and all the racism attached to that. Uh, I, we disagree that was a bad thing and he shouldn't have done that. So my question that leads me to my question, which is do, we don't know yet really how this started, right? Anyone who thinks they know how this started, we have some guesses, some predictions, some ideas, no one knows how this started, right?
1: Well, it depends what you mean, how it started. We, we do know, I think pretty well that it started in a bat. A if bat. there was okay. a virus, a bat, a horseshoe bat, horseshoe okay. bat. In fact, I could almost pull up a picture do they eat horseshoe golden bats. hamsters? I hope not. It'd be so sad for Lynn. <laughs> but um, yeah, they're pretty cool-looking horseshoe bats. So we know that horseshoe bats carry all sorts of coronaviruses, and apparently do just fine. We know that. We know right. that they're sources. They live in caves in Asia, um, and so we we do know that. And people have found the reason why I say we know it is because people have found viruses in Corona bats recently in Laos and Cambodia that are really, really similar to this guy. Okay. Not exactly the same, but in sequence, in terms of their RNA sequence, it's really similar. So we know it came from one of these, but what we don't know is exactly how did it get from there to people? Right. And that's where there's been lots of, Oh, well, I mean, there, yes, there are people saying it was manufacturing lab. No, it wasn't manufacturing lab. Was it somehow related to a lab, Error or escape? Maybe an employee at the lab was working with it in this lab in Wuhan in the Institute of Virology there. Maybe that happened. Other lab accidents? Yes, there can be lab accidents. Do governments cover up lab accidents? Yes, they do. And initially. so would we, certainly, right? <laughs> and we do. We have the yeah. Russians have. I mean, this is not this is not something unprecedented that somebody would do that could do that. But in this case. I'll just say from my opinion, because I've looked into this, you know, I want to know myself, I've looked into a fair amount, uh, you know, of the evidence that this thing came out of the lab, either, you know, accidentally, even if you figure that they, because they're real researchers, there they're actually good, good researchers. And I don't think there's, the evidence is not there. In the beginning, there was circumstantial evidence, you start to worry, was there somebody sick right before in the lab, could they have had it? But in reality, when you start to walk through the evidence, which ranges from, what exactly did the virus look like? Where were the first cases actually found? Is there a link to an animal market, famous Wuhan animal market? Yes. Are the cases linked to that? Yes. Was there? Was that Was that lab actually working on this kind of virus? I mean, yes, corona, but this kind? No, apparently there's no evidence of that. All of that together has made, forget me, but reading uh, some very interesting scholarly articles looking at this made me think that that it, it clearly was something that came through the through the animal markets, as these things do, as first SARS did, right. as other as other viruses right.
0: often do. And, and I assume it matters, because if we know how it started, perhaps we can prevent a similar thing in the future?
1: Well, if you believe, which seems to be the case, that these wild animal markets, where you bring in these exotic beasts, pangolins, and civet cats, and something else, raccoons something, uh, not raccoons, but something, you know, these, these animals yep. that we don't have, and you bring them in and they really are in proximity to bats because the thought is probably, but not necessarily, it wasn't the bat directly huh. biting somebody yeah. or infecting or sneezing on a little bat nose, sneezing, it'd be so cute, except it's a coronavirus, um, it may, that they infect some other creature who then is being sold at the markets and the employees at the markets end up getting it and they spread it to their families and that kind of thing. Um, Assuming that that is what happens, that would suggest, and, and I think the Chinese initially did cut down a lot after the first SARS on the animal markets, but didn't obviously get rid of them. Right. But so that would be one one thing. That's but that's not the only way, obviously. Right. Because we are encroaching, as you know, people are, on the wild. And the more we build houses and go into the wild, the more we're going to be encountering beasts and get the right. famous zoonotic
0: diseases coming from animals. Interesting. All right, I want to shift I want to shift a little bit to talking about how vaccines are approved. You've bit you've worked on the meningitis vaccine and a bunch of other vaccines. You are really familiar with this process. Is it a good process in America? Is it a bad process? What could be done better? How political is it? I I'm really interested in that. Well, the process in the US is similar to the process in all the
1: industrialized countries actually and in many non-industrialized countries or lower middle-income countries, which is that there is a regulatory authority, first of all. In the case of the U.S., it's the FDA. In the case of Europe, it's the European Medicinal Agency, the EMA. And Japan has their own. And every country actually has their own. EU, actually, countries have their own, but there's a a broader one. Canada, et cetera. And that's that's the entity that actually decides if a vaccine or a drug or a medical device is safe and effective. Right, so that's what they are looking at: is it safe and effective? It doesn't say you should use it. It doesn't say it's cost-effective or it's good policy to recommend everybody having it. It just says, is this thing safe and effective? And I think, in general, yes, the FDA and the Europeans have been very good. I mean, there are specific cases where you I feel like they're too conservative. There was a famous case recently with the uh, Alzheimer's drug, with the FDA, where I think many, many people thought they were just completely too lax. In fact, all their advisors said that it was it was not a good move. This is under Biden administration. So but in general, this is a (laughs) nonpartisan
0: podcast. But
1: (laughs) good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But under but the vaccine vaccines go through that process, too. So in that sense, there is a, a competent regulatory authority. In general, because vaccines are given generally to healthy people and a lot of people, the barriers, the bars to getting them through is much higher. You've got to show a level of safety that is much, much lo- you know, higher right. than the level you show for a chemotherapy agent for somebody who's got lymphoma, right? Right. They will accept all sorts of stuff. You can make me throw up. I don't care. You know, I just want to get rid of this thing. Whereas you don't do that if you're giving it to hundreds of thousands or millions, especially if they're little babies, as often immunizations are. So it's a very rigorous, I, I think it's a very, very rigorous testing program that you have to go through a clinical testing, which is much more rigorous, frankly, and much bigger and much uh, more, I don't want to say more serious, but is much more extensive than what you do for almost any pharmaceutical, other pharmaceutical drugs. <sighs> So in that sense, I think it's really good they have outside panels of experts that weigh in, these advisory who are not part of the FDA. Right. You know, generally, sure. the FDA follows what they say. So that's the first part, which I can stop. That's the regulatory part. Yeah. Then there's a second part, which is where the CDC comes in, which is who is it that's going, who should get it? Right. Who should be recommended to? Should insurance companies pay for it or not? They, they're looking going, well, that's great. I'm glad you've licensed that vaccine for rabies. FDA, but we're not going to pay for it for everybody in the world just to get rabies vaccine tomorrow, right. because it's a risk-benefit issue, right? And it's certain groups need it and some don't. That's the CDC, and the CDC, as you can imagine, is much more, uh, in theory and in reality, should be much more attuned to societal issues of trade-offs, of cost of, of um, you know, the, the risk-benefit than, than the FDA is that's where you have advisory committees also that meet and say we've seen the the fda has said this is safe and effective based on that we think these groups should get it everybody under five or the entire population or only people with kidney transplants etc right so those are the two major elements you have a regulatory and then you have the the public health agency both part of hhs and most countries have something like that okay I think for general vaccines it's been quite good you have you know vaccines are amazing in terms of what they've done in preventing diseases we don't have to get into polio or smallpox or meningitis or rotavirus or all sorts of things but um but of course with COVID, you've got a pandemic and suddenly everything is turbocharged and it gets very you know more politicized just to make it clear on the regulatory front i don't think the fda corners, I think they were great, what they did, the the level of information, the amount of information they had on this, these, the first two vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna was like you do with any other vaccine, the 10s of 1000s of people that had gotten it in clinical studies in the randomized, double blind studies where one group gets it, one group doesn't and they're otherwise exactly the same and they don't know if they got it or not and you see which one is protected. That's the gold standard. And they they had these huge trials, Pfizer and Moderna. Right. So the FDA did not just cut corners, you know, and it is just that what they didn't have the one thing. And so they had huge safety data. They had very clear efficacy. That thing worked. What they didn't have, which you normally would like to have, which is why they didn't initially give a full license, but they gave this, uh, what is it called? you know, Johnson and Johnson. The emergency, you know, the emergency license, they gave yeah. the emergency use permit initially. They didn't have years of experience. You don't know what happened two or three years later. Sure. During a pandemic, you go, all right, you got a choice. You can wait. Yeah. Or you can yeah. get this thing out there, which you know is safe and effective in the nine months or the six months that they have used it. And it, of course, it, as you go on longer, you get more information. And it turns out it really is amazingly safe and effective. These things. So I think they did a great job on that.
0: And, and, I, I, sh- and, that I, and the- I should tell everybody that, um, like me, you are... A pretty serious critic of the U.S. government in a lot of different ways, um, you know, across the board of, of 10, 15, 50 major public policy issues we could talk about. Um, but you're an expert on this. And of course, humans are fallible and people make mistakes and people run governments. But you're reasonably satisfied. With, and of course, there's always room for improvement. But you're reasonably satisfied with how the FDA yeah, yeah. and CDC does this. Well,
1: how I the mean, FDA did, I think. they. The, I, mean I, mean, I don't
0: general- mean, I don't mean COVID specifically. I mean, in
1: yeah. general. In general, the vaccine stuff, I think, is really well done. And, okay. you know, I lived in, as you know, I lived in Europe for a number of years. Yeah. And the U.S., you can look back at the U.S. and you can compare how do they do it in Europe versus how do they do it in the U.S. And there are pros and cons. And sometimes the FDA, I go, oh, you know, I shake your head. Oh, the, uh, the Europeans, at least they're recognizing this. And the FDA doesn't and the CDC. So there are there are some differences. Right. But in general, yes, they're very serious. They're good. They haven't been corrupted completely. I'm hoping the C D C will rebound from right. which I don't think they have yet, really. Right. From what happened under Trump and I don't think I'm not sure under Biden it's it's less chaotic. A lot of good people left, burned out. Right. Um
0: so I think All right. yeah um we need what I think is my last question, though you might trigger another one, is um should so so the only the way this works in America, and I assume most of the world, is this is a profit making enterprise for the companies like Pfizer, you know, that that produce these vaccines. And then someone has to pay for it, obviously, because Pfizer has to make a profit to make the next vaccine. Um, is that the way this should work? I mean, there's a part of me that wants to say, for example, crazy analogy. I, I've always thought less so today than 30 years ago, that maybe oil shouldn't be a profit-making enterprise. Like maybe we could do better and gas prices might be different and oh, everything might be different if oil was not a capitalistic enterprise. Should vac- uh, That may be wrong, but I'm not sure it's horrifically wrong. Should vaccines be a profit-making enterprise? I mean, part of the answer is you don't really have a choice. Right.
1: I don't think. Okay. So the history of vaccine producing and manufacturing is that there used to be many public sector vaccine producers. State of Massachusetts had a vaccine producer. State of Michigan had a vaccine producer. Interesting. A lot of countries had their own national kind of producer. Brazil and uh, Mexico, etc. And one by one, well, what you found first of all is that. They didn't innovate. They didn't really make new vaccines. They made the original DTP, so that was good, and the original polios. But actually, pretty you find out that the prices were extremely low. It's public sector, so you want to have prices really low. Well, if it's prices really low, there's no money going in to innovate. Right. Plus, where's the incentive right. to innovate? And right. in the real world, so besides the nice world that we'd like to live in, in the real world, literally all the major vaccine production is done in for-profit enterprises. Whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or in India, which actually is a major supply. What about Russia and China? China? Russia Russia has vaccine producers and China has a mixture. China has state-owned okay. and China has private ones. So, okay. and you're really finding that it's very clear that the new vaccines are coming out of the state-owned, I mean, out of the private ones, and some of the companies, like the Pfizer's and the Moderna's and the GlaxoSmithKline's and then Novartis's, um, they are, and now you have AstraZeneca, you have a number of others. But for a long time, when you had private, and actually the prices were really, really low, because they should be, right? Yeah. Companies began getting out, of course. They're not making any money. They could make much more money in the pharmaceutical. Right. So there had to be starting to, and plus they were getting sued for anything. Anybody has any kind of, reaction linked or not, they would get sued and they go, What what am I doing in this business? So in the in the seventies and eighties and nineties, they were kind of propped up. The government realized we have to have insurance programs for injury what's called the vaccine injury compensation program. And that maybe vaccines should cost something because they're worth a lot. Right. So yes, I think in the real world you don't have a choice. That's where they are. Okay. I think the issues, in my view, are not should they be like this? But it's more like, you know, where should the prices be? Right. And how should that be determined? And there are different views on that. I have my views, which I'm happy to share. But in general, you clearly have to, if it's pennies a dose, you're not, you know, if it's just barely above cost, they will get out. It's pretty clear. They
0: will just get out of it. We don't want that. And I'm assuming people who simply can't afford them, there's a way to get them the vaccines anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. In the U.S., there's the Vaccines for Children program, which is a government program. Right. Medicare will pay. So, yeah, there is. OK. Um, that was put into place. Um, I'm not sure when exactly.
0: OK. Well, years ago. well, I lied. I do have one last question, which you won't be able to answer, but I want your informed opinion about. OK, so and I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, we could have a debate about who's going to win the NBA championship. And it's likely we'd have an opinion about four or five teams, not 20, 31 teams. Um, And and so we can have informed opinions that are just that, opinions. Am I going to be wearing a mask a year from now in class? Because I don't want to really badly. I would be really surprised, frankly, for a couple of reasons.
1: One is just I think people have clearly had enough. I'm pretty
0: much there now.
1: (laughs) You're there now and you believe in vaccines and masks and all that. Yeah, and if you didn't, you're you know, and I think certain parts of the country, in fact, parts of the state that you live in, don't yes. even live in the same state that you live in. Although they are in the same state, it's kind of interesting. Yes, they don't have the masks. They don't care about vaccines. So I do think. I mean, you watch today. I guess three Democratic governors said no more masks in schools. We're not going to mandate it. That's schools. You're a school, right? Universities. Yes. So I do think. For one reason is that uh, clearly it's been shown that if you are vaccinated, you are very highly protected okay. against serious disease. So that's one. There's also in- increasing data, which has been there over a year, that says schools don't really, they're not the source of transmitting. Now, this is a younger schools in your law school, but right. in general, they're not where things are transmitted. Right. And that's why the Europeans mostly kept their schools open while we right. were closing them. The other thing I think that it's clear is that it's becoming endemic. What does endemic mean? Endemic means, as opposed to epidemic, endemic means it's something which is kind of always around to a certain extent. The flu is endemic; it yeah. has peaks every year, and different different strains come up, but you're going to get it every year. Other coronaviruses, the com- some, of, some of the common cold viruses, are they're endemic. They, right, they around; right. seasonal, but they're around. This guy yeah. undoubtedly will join the firmament of things that are around but at the same time as people know if you've been ever been infected if you've been vaccinated and if you have had both you have protection some protection are you protected against infection well it doesn't look like with omicron you know you can get infected with omicron but i think what's going to change what's changing i hope i believe is a recognition that it's not about never getting infected it's not like Oh my god i had a cold yesterday i can't I mean, We can't have that you know it's not about that it's about are you getting sick enough that it really disturbs your life and sends you to the hospital or not and, i'm and, sorry to say that but that's what it is and people i think are now sort of recognizing more and more yeah we have a, to live we need to be able to do that and masks have their own consequences for kids especially right Not just i don't think your law students probably suffer too much but Kids clearly are, it's a tough one when they're learning how to speak and they, you know, they're trying to understand. It's clearly very,
0: not trivial. It's got costs. to your credit, you said, I think as early as May or June and after the March when the pandemic started, that um, the issue shouldn't be how many people get it. The issue should be how many people get hospitalized, die or get really sick. And for a long time, that wasn't the issue. For a long time, the issue was how do I not get this disease? or I'm sorry, this virus. Um, but you said very early on, that's not the question. Um, and, and you and you made the analogy to the common cold. We all get colds in the winter or other times. Who cares? You get a cold, you get over it. And hopefully, COVID will be this sometime in the foreseeable future. Do I have that right? Is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you
1: if you are vaccinated, and especially if you're boosted, but even yeah. if you're not, but if you're vaccinated. Generally, that's that's the worst that happens. Is you get it as you get some symptoms, okay. which are not nice. Nobody's trying to say, you know, it's it's lovely. I'd love I'd love to have that. <laughs> you know, I I got infected with Omicron. It was pretty trivial, so right. I began to laugh. I laugh at Omicron. But then you hear other people who've been vaccinated, who are healthy otherwise, and it's you know it's kind of a nasty cold, still. All right, fine. But you got to keep your eye on the ball. Otherwise, right. we will be sh- you know we're not going to shut down again. You may have truckers surrounding all the american cities like they're doing in ottawa right at the moment you know you don't want social disruption right, right. and i want kids who are i think psychologically pretty hit yeah. hard by this shutdown of schools and uh, masks i think is less of an issue but it is an issue as we talked about i just yeah. we need to get back to that and and say there's always going to be some trade-offs be-
0: because this applies to me personally um i probably over-amplify it, but I do think only time will tell how much damage this did, not the public policy, but just the event, to 10 to 14-year-old kids who were on social media 50 times more than they would have been without the disease. And And I think I see in my own children patterns and things that wouldn't have been there had it not been that they were stuck in a room and i could not keep them away from their friends 100% of the time it just wasn't a that would be even worse than what happened but i think there's some there's going to be some serious pain in this generation of teens and preteens who went through this but i'm not an expert on that neither are you but i do suspect that's going to happen i think it's
1: well there's two two aspects two different aspects one is the social yeah. world yeah. ability to, to interact with people yeah. which is already Diminished with social media, yeah. but the second is the academic. Right. And kids who literally, you know, lost a year or
0: two of school, yep. a lot of kids. Yep. The combination of those is pretty brutal. I, mean, I would think the expectations of kids going into 10th grade, let's say, a year from now, the expectations of those teachers should be different than five years ago because these kids had two years of not as good education. Nationally, on average, do you think I'm right about that? I think I'm right about that. I mean, well,
1: as, as you know, my wife works in schools. She's yes. a, a former English teacher. She's a college yeah. guidance counselor. Yeah. And one of the things, so, so of course, that has changed the expectations. But one of the concrete differences is the disappearance of the SAT. Right. As a, a requirement. I a applaud that, Congress. by the way.
0: Yeah. I'm all in favor. I'm all. In, now, if we get rid of the LSAT, I'll be even happier.
1: <laughs> Did that yeah. survive with unimpeded the whole time? Nobody? Yeah. So that SAT really, uh, it's changed. And, and I, I was, I've been asking her, you know, to what extent are university is going to continue yeah, uh, keeping it, you know, not using yeah. it. And, and what's the impact been? Because they all apparently are saying we are much more diverse than we were.
0: Yep. It but we all knew, Bill, changed. we knew that all along, that you take away standardized tests, diversity will increase. No question. All right. We got a call. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's great to see you personally. But even better, um, I've learned a tremendous amount. I think the listeners have too. And thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks very much, Eric, for inviting okay. me. Thanks, Bill.